Good morning to Seattle and to Little Saigon and to all my friends who are all across the great lockdown United States of America, the viral plague zone, all you folks battling the mutant freaks from Sector 8. Keep up the fight, people. You'll beat them one of these days. Today's podcast, yeah, it's May the 16th. It's Saturday. It's 10 a.m. And... I'm talking with my friend Mike, who is a fellow Washingtonian. He is also a fellow, you know, I I don't want to call him an anarchist because I know some people prefer voluntarist, but he believes in human dignity and human liberty, and he also enjoys crunching numbers. And my friend Mike said a few weeks ago, I've I've been looking at these COVID numbers and I would love to talk talk with you about them, the, the virus numbers, the plague numbers. And, you know, again, his background isn't necessarily this field, but he's a he's a smart guy. He's an interesting guy. And so I thought we would do a podcast on a kind of general assessment of the state of the plague, the state of the corona, whatever it's being called this week, the COVID-19. I don't care. It's terrible, whatever it is, because it's forcing us to live like animals in cages. But without further ado... Here's my friend Mike, who's going to introduce a little bit more about himself. Hey, Mike. Hey, Dan. How's it going this morning? Yeah, it's going. I, I'm kind of, I don't know. It's going. <laughs> That's about to say for me. You know, I'm, I'm always happy to be alive. I'm uh, frankly surprised some mornings when I wake up that uh, I'm on the right side of the grass. So that's always a good place to start. Um, yeah, a little bit about me. Uh, I, uh, born and raised here in the, the uh, wonderful state of Washington, um, we're about the same age, I think I'm a couple years older than you, I grew up in Kitsap County, and, um, uh, went to high school there, and, uh, goofed off a bit around after high school, and my mom kind of shipped me off to a small college in Michigan. Uh, where I met my wife, and I lived there for a bunch of years and got myself involved in, in uh, manufacturing and tool building and some other things in the automotive industry. So did a lot of welding and fabricating and um, kind of uh, had a knack for management. And as far as numbers go, most of my, most of my expertise would really lie in statistical process control. And so kind of late in life, I... Uh, come to really uh, learn uh, to, to love that end of the math world, the, the statistics and the numbers. Um, and then as I've gotten older uh, and my political views have changed, you kind of hinted about that, I, I don't even really have a label. Um, I just hate the state. I think that's, uh, <laughs> I think that's the best way to describe me. I hate, I hate force and violence, and I, um, I hate monopolies based on that. So I think uh, there's a lot of fellow travelers there uh, around the world, and uh, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of where I am. Um, oh, go ahead. Yeah, that's, that's about it. I, I work uh, here uh, some years ago, moved back here to, to the great state of Washington because Michigan... Uh, was uh, in the dumps uh, for most of the 2000s, and finally I just I just moved. I moved actually um, in 
I decided to move in, in 2006 when the chief export, the chief uh, product that Michigan was doing, the chief growth industry in Michigan was landfills. So Michigan was actually importing garbage from Canada, and that, that was the growth industry in Michigan at the time. <laughs> so I decided that I needed to move somewhere else, and it's at that time that I, uh, through some networks, found a job here in, in uh, Washington, and then did that for a number of years. And then uh, about eight years ago, uh, got a job at a very large uh, manufacturing company here locally. I, I can't really say who it is, but it does start with a B. So uh, uh, some days I, I uh, as I'm driving to work, I say, all right, back into the heart of the military industrial complex. So that's kind of a little bit about me. How did you become in, interested in um, looking at the COVID data? Well, um, the, the first thing that I heard back in, I want to say February, excuse me, I, I got I to gotta, uh, uh, take a drink of water here. Cool. Was um, when I heard 3% uh, uh, death rate, I want to say maybe that was mid-February, early to mid-February. I don't remember the exact timeline. And so a lot of people at work were talking about it, and there was a lot of chatter on the news and on you know social media. And so I, I really didn't know anything. And so I just started, I went right to the CDC's website, and I spent uh, probably more time than I would care to admit deep diving the flu statistics all the way into, I had to go into the library system. Hey, uh, Mike, Mike, Yeah. there's two things. I'm getting feedback from your headset, and you're also going okay. in and out as far as volume. Like, your volume will drop, and then it'll go up again. All right. Let me, uh, let me just get rid of this right, right now. Hold on. How's that, Dan? That's way better. All right. Yeah. All right. So uh, I just did a deep dive and uh, looked at some of the news sources that were counting the COVID deaths based on the absolute number of people who were confirmed to uh, have had it. Or, and I don't even know how good those numbers are, but let's just assume that they're true. Let's assume the tests are uh, very accurate and they're true. And then the what they call the flu surveillance is based on um, uh, surveys taken from 13 geographically diverse surveillance areas across the United States. So it covers approximately 9% of the country's population. And then what they do with that is they uh, take the historical numbers and they do a bunch of uh, essentially multiplications on that to produce a very much larger denominator of people they think might have had the flu that particular season. And so the denominator 
of the flu is a much larger number that they they try and base on the entire population of the of the United States, if that makes sense. And so, you know, people were freaking out, going, "Ah, three percent of people die." <laughs> and you know, of course, the news just propagated that by um, using those numbers and and kind of letting them speak for themselves and letting people draw their own conclusions, as is the the you know, the technique of propaganda. And, uh, of course, the first thing that people are going to do is compare it to the flu, which has a much smaller number, right? It's it's down in the, you know, one per thousand or one per hundred thousand, uh, something like that range of people who die, actually die from the flu. And, of course, those numbers are, you know, one year was uh, a 95% confidence interval, Nineteen thousand to seventy-nine thousand people might have died from the flu last year. So the numbers are just not very good to begin with. And making comparisons—that's where I started really kind of arguing with people on Twitter about it, Uh, trying to teach people the significance of a denominator. And uh, (laughs) which is amazing to me that that you have to go to that length, like. Hey, man, <laughs> well, what's your denominator and what it's based on? You can't compare one method of absolute counting to uh, a method of, of uh, mathematical extrapolation where your denominator is much big, bigger. Oh, oh, right. And another thing, too, I would say um, mathematics as a discipline in the general population, it's not really a common thing these days. Um, I, I, I would say that probably it's sad to say this, but probably a lot of adults we work with don't really have the math skills or the logic skills to approach a lot of these numbers and have a, an educated opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, Edward Bernays, right? Yes, he is. I believe he was like a nephew of Sigmund Freud or something, and he was also right. he was also responsible in the early 20th century of more or less creating the philosophy, the science behind both public relations and marketing, but also I would argue a lot of the science behind um, controlling groups. You know, mm-hmm. you know, basically the science behind things like a psyop at a large scale. How would you convince people um, that the sky is gray when it's blue? How would you do that? Right. These are the people that develop the science of mass manipulation, and maybe even to some extent were the progenitors of what later became things like MK Ultra. Edward Bernays is a very shady guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes now if you watch interviews there's a lot of interviews of him on YouTube uh, he he will always couch his um, uh, his activities in the uh, the idea that he would only help people who were trying to do good and uh, I saw an interview some years ago of him that always stuck in my mind and that was that he said you know, for example, I helped uh, Wilson craft his 14 points. 
Now, this guy lived like 103 years. I mean, he lived a lot. <laughs> he, he inflicted himself on the world for a long time. And uh, one of the things he said was, so, you know, how did, how did we get the Swiss to sign on to this treaty in the, by using the 14 points? Well, we talked about uh, the freedom of the seas. So that really tapped in and we were able to use that to, to get them to understand that, hey, look, uh, even though you guys aren't on the sea, you need things that are shipped by the sea from all over the world. And if you don't sign on to this, maybe the, maybe the, uh, the seas won't be free and so on and so forth, all the way down to the entire 14 points, there was, there was language in each of those 14 points targeted specifically at uh, some ally or some interest group that they needed to sign on and, and to make that, that treaty happen at the end of World War I. And then he says, oh, and yeah, by the way, you know, there was, there was good liberal and, and, and you know, good freedom and, and human rights type stuff in there, too. Well, that's As nice. Aside. You know. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, I, I kind of, I read the book Propaganda back in the 90s that he wrote, which is uh, really great, by the way. And if people don't want to read it, there's, I think that there's, pe people have read it on YouTube. I think it's, you can get it on audiobook that way, even though it's probably not licensed or it's still copyrighted, by the way. Uh, and so uh, that. The other thing I think about is the book Fast, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Uh, have you ever heard of that? No, I haven't. It sounds familiar, though. Okay. So... And I know I'm kind of getting off track here, but I'm going to bring this back to to where to where we started. Oh, that's fine. So if you, if you, that's fine. So Kahneman is a brilliant guy, by the way, and and he seems to me to be a good guy. Uh, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube. People can Google uh, Daniel Kahneman. It's K A H N E M A N, and um, uh, the book is excellent. Uh, there's a lot of people that have done sort of cartoon drawing type, uh, you know, uh, explanations of his of his theories. He did a lot of experiments on how people think and make decisions um, when presented with very similar choices. And so, uh, uh, w w one of the things he really talks about is. Um, several things. First off is your fast brain and your slow brain. So your fast brain is the thing that says, yes, I want that or no, I don't. And your slow brain is the part that says, wait a minute, what is the fast brain doing? Is, does that actually make sense in terms of the reality and the logic? Your fast brain runs according to sort of your your internal biases, and of course, it really taps into the, the core of who you are, your arc complex or your limbic system that helps you understand whether you need to run or, or stay and fight, so your fight or flight system. Uh, the, the slow brain, right, is the, is the part that 
helps has helps you think about a longer time horizon and and to be able to you know think past the, the immediate and and think longer um, so he talks about uh, your fast brain relying on repetition right uh, the things that you understand the 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 stuff that you hear every day, the things you're familiar with, right? So um, a good example of that is name recognition for a winning political candidate, okay? Donald Trump is a perfect example of that. Um, I mean, Donald Trump is not qualified to hardly run his own businesses, let alone, you know, quote-unquote, run the country or whatever that even means. Um he did a study where students at the University of Michigan were exposed to Turkish-sounding words that were kind of gibberish. And what they did is they ran these words in the front page of the student newspaper and then conducted a poll over time. And the longer they had those words exposed, the more favorable those words were rated by the students as they polled them. And they were meaningless. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the next thing is uh, the status quo, right? Why, why do we stick to what we know? Um, so Kahneman talks about the domain of gains versus the domain of losses. And he will uh, uh, talk about how um, people will choose an identical uh, loss of, you know, a prevention of loss over an identical gain every single time, right? So uh, if you said, hey, uh, uh, one of the experiments you ran was um, if, if you uh, flip a coin and if it's heads, you win $100. And if it's tails, I, if it's heads, you win 150 If it's tails, I win 100 Well, um, that's great, right? But the way he frames it is, you win $100, $150 on heads, you lose $100 on tails. And the vast majority of people, something like 80% of people, will not take the bet, even though you would say, you could come back and say, okay, run it 100 times, <laughs> right? right? And then let's settle up at the end. Well, you, you would, you know, obviously, a binomial distribution being what it is, you're, you're, you're going to come out ahead at the end of that, probably way ahead. Uh, uh, you know, all things being equal. And so people will focus on that $100 loss instead of the $150 gain and not think about the probability of the 50-50 head uh, coin toss, right? Right. There's also something called the endowment effect. So uh, you have, uh, what he did is he put a bunch of students in a room and he gave uh, half the students a coffee mug, and he asked them to appraise the value of the mug. Okay, then he brought in a second group, and he asked them to choose either the coffee mug or a sum of money equal to their appraised value. Okay? So the first group with the coffee mug uh, valued that coffee mug at an average of $7. This is a little more than that, but basically $7. The group without the coffee mug appraised it at $3. And so you have this, 
you know, you already have the thing. And so because you have the thing, you, <laughs> you value it at a at greater than it's actually worth on net, right? Right. Um, and so if you think about that, right, uh, you have the thing, regardless of what it's worth, you probably don't want to let it go. And if you just think about that tendency in, in, in humans, right, that's a really powerful, powerful uh, feature of our of our emotional wiring that is so easily exploited by uh, the, the folks who understand that and want to use it to somebody who's just trying to live their life and, and be normal, right? Right. So um, uh, those are just a couple of a couple of the things I want to think about here. Um, and there's ways you obviously you can counteract these things, and we can talk about that maybe at another time. Uh, your fast system chooses a conclusion, infers, and invents the causes, and then blocks out ambiguity and doubt. Right. So right. Uh, that's that's just exactly what happens here if you look at this whole how this whole virus thing played out. Right. So. Oh my gosh, three uh, percent of people who get it die. So now we've got that planet axiom in people's minds, and even though that that number is completely in the, it, it might as well be a hundred years ago now, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, that's the emotional connection that was established in the minds of of uh, average people, and and so. Once that's there, now uh, we we can use that feeling and that uh, the inferences, right, and the the brain's tendency to go ahead and block out any of the ambiguity and doubt about that and say yes, we have to do something. And so, shortly after that, once that number was established. We started locking things down. And, and, and when that's you, when I really thought... Hey, Mike, can I ask you a oh, question really quick? Yeah. So yeah. The, the number you're talking about, is that the the CDC's mortality rate? Well, that was the initial statistics thrown around based on numbers that were being collected in China. Okay, okay. So that's right. back in February then, right? Right, right. Way um, back in February. So, yeah. Because so, okay, February eleventh is when the World Health Organization formally called it COVID nineteen, and right. I was because I'm just looking over the timeline right now, really quick, because I think it's interesting to think about this. But right. you're you're so basically around about that time, they kind of said that the death rate or whatever the mortality rate was basically 3% roughly? Yeah. So, I mean, th so if you, if you looked at the numbers, if you could see what they were basing it on, right? And then, but the, but the reporting in the press was, and I had a, I had a hard time going back and finding any of this because it's kind of gone down the, the, the internet memory hole. But I had, I could see it on my Twitter timeline that I was talking to people about, the difference between how 
the flu numbers were collected versus the the, the uh, coronavirus numbers because that was the immediate thing that people were comparing it to. Oh, this is, you know, three out of a hundred instead of three out of a thousand. It's actually way more, way less than that for the, for the flu virus. But, um, and so, you know, you've got an order of magnitude more deadly in people's minds, right? And yeah. so, uh, that right there is, is the thing that was established. That's the, the planted axiom. And that's the, uh, that's the thing that now is the status quo, right? It, in, in internally, in some somebody's mind, three percent. We got to do something about this. Well, another thing you said on a separate topic, but related, something you said about the. I think it was it was the name of the fellow Kahneman. Kahneman. Um, Daniel Daniel Kahneman. And he wrote "Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow," basically. Um, what's the title of the the actual title of the book? Thinking fast and slow. Okay, thinking fast and slow. One of the, you know yeah. that experiment you described about the university putting the Turkish words in the student newspaper, that experiment. Yes. Okay. So going back to 2017, January 11th, 2017, you have Fauci, that motherfucker, basically saying Trump will face some kind of epidemic or pandemic in his time in office. He says that in March of 2018. And I remember this because it was so stupid. There were tons of articles showing up everywhere, you know, Business Week, Forbes, you name it, about something called Disease X. Oh, Disease X is coming, Mike, and it's going to vaporize your brain. I'm not, but, but, well, that's the thing, though. That's the thing, though, is that there's this, it's, and, and then think about all the movies that have come out over the last 20 years, you know, especially that Contagion movie um, that came out in 2011. I think it was 2011 when that, when that film came out. These, it seems like they've been doing exactly what you described um, Edward Bernays talking about and what, and what Kahneman studied, that they've been putting this thought out there for a while in different forms. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to be clear about Kahneman, I'm using, so when I read that book, what I thought immediately about was Bernays. Now, he doesn't talk about propaganda in his book. His, the purpose of his book is to try and teach people how to counteract the way their brain wants to work to make better decisions in life. Right. So I, I want to be clear on that, right? Common doesn't talk about propaganda at all. That's a, that's a use that I'm putting it towards is just thinking about how does my brain work? Yeah, but I think what that's are my tendencies, and but, what, yeah. what can I do? Yeah. But Mike, that's applicable. It's no, applicable. Uh, absolutely. I just wanted to make sure people don't get the idea that he wrote this book against propaganda. He, he did. Right. Okay. So, <clears throat> before we go too much further, sure. What were your principal sources of data? In the you know when you went to look at this, like where did your data sources come from? For your stuff. Did they all come from the CDC? I just went right to the CDC. Okay. So the CDC has a whole uh, uh, data warehouse right there. Uh, and they've got, you know, it, it's kind of, it's been a little slippery to, to keep track of it because the website is, is 
literally changes every day. Um, and, it, and I think it's a function of what's going on with the coronavirus. Uh, and so, you know, basically it's, uh, I believe the website is data.cdc.gov. If you go there, um, that has, basically that's the portal. You can go in and, and do a lot of different data reports and pull the data in whatever format you, you pretty much want. What, what was that um, called so again? I, I, you said date. What was the what was the link again? Just real quick. I think it's data. Cdc. Here, let me just type it in my browser. I've got it. Yeah, data. Cdc. Gov. Okay. Cool. So that that's kind of the root directory of their of their uh, data. Uh, so if you go right there, and if you're a develop software developer, you could probably um, you know, hook, hook up to, you know, use APIs and whatnot. Uh, but there, there's a lot of stuff there. There's the National Center for Health Statistics. Um, there's information on vaccination, uh, all, all kinds of stuff. It's, it's all there. It, it links to pretty much all of that type of, of data. So, you know, I, I was thinking about this uh, and how would you you know, we've got this sort of really raw, rough data of the of this COVID-19 or coronavirus or whatever, where we don't really know everybody who's been exposed. We don't really know how many people have had it or will have it. It's a novel virus, supposedly, so, you know, the, the data is going to be very poor compared to the flu. So how would we really make a good comparison? And... And the thing is, I thought, okay, so the WHO said this is a pandemic. So what is a pandemic? What so is when, a pandemic, up, Mike? <laughs> yeah. What's that? What is a pandemic, Mike? We were talking about this the other day about the Wikipedia page. What is a right. pandemic? So I went and I looked up the definition of a pandemic. And it is a disease that is prevalent over a whole country or the whole world. So that that's that's uh, that's pretty much it. That's if you go to Google or Bing and you look up pandemic, it'll give you a little box, and that's the definition that comes up. Yeah. Uh, the Mayo Clinic um, says. That uh, it is, doo, 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 doo. it refers to a global epidemic, one that has spread over several countries or continents and affects a large number of people. That's uh, that's really phenomenal. That's a great definition. WebMD says a pandemic is a spread of a new disease around the world. Health experts and scientists agree that it means a surge in illness over a large area. That that last that's, one's kind of yeah. squishy. They're all squishy. Yeah, but that one's because what's an illness? It it doesn't say it has to be the same one. Right. Yep. So if so, a if a mobster starts taking out a bunch of people within his mobster population, I guess that's a kind of little mini miniature epidemic or something of blood right. poisoning. I don't know. 
Yeah, but if it <sighs> spreads, then it's a pandemic. Yep. Yep, so yep, yep. There, there's no, there's no quantifiable uh, answer. I, I did more searching than I care to admit. Uh, uh, I, I tried to find it in the WHO. That was just as about as useless as, uh, you know, trying to walk backwards to work. I, uh, I, I can't. I couldn't find anything on their website at all except this general definition as well. So when the WHO says it's a pandemic, it's a pandemic. Okay, just trust us, citizen. So that's the definition of a pandemic, then. That's the definition. <laughs> right. Right. When we say it's a pandemic, it's a pandemic, basically. Okay. That, yeah. Yeah. Go back inside your house, citizen. That, that's basically it. So what specific... Then, oh, go ahead. Go one, ahead. One of the interesting things, just an aside, uh, which we had talked about, was I went to the Wikipedia page uh, about a week and a half ago, and I read the, the entire Wikipedia page. And one of the things I noticed is that they had this nice, this fancy graphic that shows um, flattening the curve and the whole purpose behind flattening the curve and why we need to flatten the curve is to preserve medical resources and to give time for the medical system to ramp up and respond so that they can uh, direct those resources to the, the critical areas in society that need it. Uh, hang on a minute. Uh, Dan, I got a cough. <laughs> oh, you got the COVID, Mike. Yeah. I'm going to report uh, to you. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I looked at that webpage and I literally, I just started laughing. I, I thought, you know, I bet you this thing's been changed. There's no way this webpage looked like this before COVID or the coronavirus or whatever we want to call it. Uh, it, it I could just see, you know, I, I mean, my hackles were, you know, up. So I went to the Wayback Machine and uh, let's just say that has been an extraordinarily actively edited uh, uh, Wikipedia page. Uh, since uh, February, hmm. and I went back to what, what, whatever date it was that I gave you, February twelfth or something like that. And of course, there was a there was one line about the coronavirus. Uh, none of those graphics were there. It was just a very straightforward page on what a pandemic is and how it's determined and who determines it. And here's some of the pandemics that have been that have happened in human history that we know of all the way back to, to Roman times and before. And of course, now it's changed. It's super slick. Anybody who goes there gets fed this very carefully crafted and curated line about making sure that we all fall in line. And uh, it, it, it's nothing's that direct, but it's all meant to reinforce the status quo that is happening right now, which is go inside, citizen. Don't disobey. Uh, follow the line, or your neighbors will report you, and maybe the police will come. Maybe, right? So that, that's kind of an aside, but that, that is very interesting. It is. It is. So very, very interesting. And and the Johns Hopkins website. I mean, if you want to look at propaganda, anybody just go to Johns Hopkins. Uh, just look up COVID Johns Hopkins. 
check that website out. It is uh, scary how good it is. The, the, the propaganda is unbelievable. It's probably completely run by the CIA. I, I think that Johns Hopkins is just an extension of the CIA as far as I can tell. I think that makes sense. I mean, I think the CIA has some experience running large-scale psyops. And so, yeah. I, you know, it, se- it would make sense to me that that would be the case. Hey, getting back to the, the main thing, though. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was the main kind of data? Based upon the stuff you sent me, I got the impression that you focused on looking at more overall mortality um, as, a, right. as a feature, which I think is actually about the only, like you pointed out, it might be the only honest way to approach this data because right. all the other right. stuff is such a mess. And then when Dr. Burks comes out and says, like she did, and gosh, when was that? I got it in my timeline. She came out and, and ugh, what did she say? On April the 8th, she said that all deaths are basically, re- well, she more or less said that, that deaths are being recorded as COVID no matter what they might have been called before. You know, someone had a stroke, it's the COVID. Someone... Someone had a heart attack, it's the COVID. Cancer's the COVID. Hit by a car probably is the COVID now. So if you look yeah. at, if you actually look at, look at it broken down by syndrome or illness or disease, you know, as if you were, you know, using like uniform diagnostic codes or something, um, like ICD-10, for example. If you did, looked at it that way, I think the data would be nutty. But if you look at the overall mortality at least you get to a number that people can kind of think about logically. And I believe you focused on mortality, correct, when you were looking at this? That's what I did, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I did get sidetracked there. That's okay. uh, I do apologize. No, you don't, no no apologies, Mike. That was a good conversation, (laughs) so no apologies. You're you're cool. So, yeah, I was was, uh, thinking about it or driving around one day, and I thought, hey, you know, uh, if, if a pandemic's going on, then we would fully expect the mortality to rise, right? Yep. Fully. I mean, the, the, there would be, there should be no doubt. So 80,000 people have died from coronavirus in the United States, is what they're saying, telling us now. Uh, that's, that's cool. Okay, I mean, that. okay, that's a number. So uh, I think the first confirmed deaths were towards the end of February, or was it the end of March? You mean in the U.S.? Yeah, in the U.S. The first, okay, I got it right in front of me. Um, All right. Hold on a second. Hold on. Um, I think it was... Okay, U.S. passed 100 cases on March the 3rd, and I okay. think... 100 cases. Yeah, 100 cases. And the first death was February the 6th in California, is what I've heard. That's the right. first death. That's right. But, but they knew yeah. that later, right? They confirmed that later. They did confirm that later. They did. Right. I, think, I think before that, it was the end of February when they thought the first death from COVID in the U.S. occurred. Right. So it was a time-traveling virus? Oh, it's either the Mandela effect virus or the time traveling virus or the virus with a thousand faces or the virus that can melt your brain. Mike, you pick one. I don't know what it is. Right. It it can travel through the the walls of your house. 
If you've been by yourself, you can get it. Okay, yeah. dude, listen to this. Um, I, I was reading that timeline you sent me, and I forget the date because yeah. I don't know if I included it, but there was some date like a month or two ago where they figured out that it could live on plastic and steel and surfaces for days, if not weeks. And I thought, who the fuck in the world of microbiology would have looked at something like that and said, well, let's do that study. It seems like you do that study 10 times before you make that conclusion, draw that conclusion, right? You probably replicate that, that, that experiment, I think, a few times. Right. Um, that's, pretty, yeah. that's pretty shocking. Um, well, yeah. And, and how would they even know that? Because, I mean, don't they, don't they see the virus based on the activity, your cellular activity in your body? You know, you would need a very powerful electron microscope probably <laughs> to verify. But right. even then, you're right. Coronaviruses kind of all look the same outside. So... You're right. That's a good question. How would they know for certain? I guess they would have extracted coronavirus, bred it in humans underground who were being tortured, sucked out the virus, yeah. placed it on various surfaces in a good Nazi way, and then observed it for several weeks, and then killed yeah. the human human um, subjects. I really don't know, dude. It's like the it's like the tigers in that zoo in New York that got the virus. It's like, eh. I mean. I don't know what to say about it. Uh, people, people were people were tweeting to me, Mike, back in I think March, um, about how they had cats get sick from it back in you know November of last year, and I thought, okay, that's weird, especially given the timeline. I don't know, yeah. man. I don't want to go off the topic too much, but the main thing is you looked at mortality because it is harder. It's harder to 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 be tricky with those numbers. You know what I did back in March, Mike, before yeah. I pass it over to you again. I sent an email to Airlift Northwest. Um, it was a request for information. I said I was a researcher and I was simply interested in daily flight numbers, which is not a HIPAA or PII issue. It doesn't violate anyone's right. privacy. All I wanted to know is, yep. was their daily flight, how many flights did they have Monday, how many Tuesday? Because that is an indicator of a surge in trauma, which would result right. from people getting really, really sick in terrible ways, you would expect that number to spike too. I never got a response. I'm not surprised. It's probably a lockdown data point because, yeah, I don't know what to say. Um, you, you go ahead. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, so the reason I chose death was because that's binary. I mean, you know, there, there are a couple hundred thousand deaths every month in the United States pretty much no matter what. Um, and that's a very stable number over the past 20 years based on CDC's own data. And so, you know, I mean, I know that there are people that fake their death. I'm sure that the government fakes some people's deaths. Um, I'm sure some people die and they're not accounted for until some years later. I know that happens, but it's got to be, you know, uh, it can't be more than a couple out of 100,000. Incredible, you can get away with that because most people know people, and so if they go missing, you know somebody remarks about it. Yeah, and that kind of sticks in our minds because of how we're wired, right? We're social, so social beings, and so I thought that's a number that really can't be 
uh, uh, fudged very, very well because it's an on-off switch. So that's when I started digging into that. And what I did was I pulled um, the entire monthly uh, mortality data from uh, 1999 until 2018. Um, And then I grouped them by month and averaged them. And then uh, came up with a number of basically 210,000 per month on average. And there's some seasonality to that. So what happens is every year starting in about week 48 or 46 or something like that, the numbers start to move up uh, and then they peak, you know, kind of in the middle of winter, February-ish. And then they start to go down again at the end of the flu season. So every year, um, seasonal flu really claims a lot of people who are vulnerable. We, we know this, right? We, we know that if you get sick with the flu and you have other problems, what they call comorbidity, um, you can, it can kill you. Yep. And so that obviously disproportionately affects people who are age 64 and above. And we'll talk about that separately in, in a couple minutes. Um, so then I also thought, well, let me see what, so, so I averaged those and I came up with 210,000 uh, on average, a little bit higher uh, in the winter months and then down lower. And then I also pulled separately 2019 all the way through uh, April of 2020. And so what I found were, so a couple things. Interestingly, last year in 2019, the highest month of mortality was March at almost 300,000, about uh, 290,000. Uh, the next highest month in 2019 was November at about uh, 280. And then down below that was June at about 270,000. And then August was 260,000. So we had these four spikes that uh, honestly, look, I, I went and looked back across the entire data in 20 years and I had never, there's no case in the entire 20 years of data that I looked at where there were spikes that were basically two standard deviations above the, the average, right? So for the audience, uh, one standard deviation above the mean is above or below the mean is 68% of the data, two standard deviations above and below the mean, uh, encompass, uh, Let's just round it up to around it to ninety eight percent of the data. So this is a real. So it's ta- very interesting. Yeah. What's that? It, this is very much on the tails of likelihood. Like that's a small percentage. That's exactly right. Yeah. So you look at draw that bell curve in your mind. Uh, that's outside of that's that's way down on the end of of the tail of of uh, the likelihood that that would occur. So it's really weird. Last year that, or in 2019, June, August, and November were so far above, and March as well, although March is technically part of the flu season. 
so then in 2020, um, January deaths were uh, right within the, I mean, almost exactly where the average is for that month. And then February, interestingly, was about 285,000 or so, 288,000, I'm sorry. So February of this year was the highest uh, overall mortality for the United States. Now, those are preliminary numbers. They could be adjusted, but I don't think they'll be adjusted down. Yeah. Because <laughs> either, again, right, we're not going to go, oops, that person's not dead. Well, I have, you sent me a graphic, um, a, a bar chart with the months. Um, yeah, with an average, that's what I'm looking at right now. Yeah, yeah, and it's a good one because I was looking at February and March, and it occurred to me, it's almost like they flipped the spike. For 2019, the spike was in March, and for 2020, the spike was in February. And That's right. And it, it, it looks like the kind of chicanery, like this, this looks like the kind of thing you would see the Federal Reserve do when they're dealing with economic numbers or the BLS. It's, it looks like chicanery. It looks like what, you've seen, what, you've, what, you, what we're seeing here is some type of numerical crap. Um, but again, I have no idea how you would go. You have to do a full audit of all these certificates, of, all these death certificates. I don't even know if it's possible to get the ability to get that. I mean, I don't even know if it's possible to have the permission to do this on any large scale. But to, to, to prove any of this, you would have to audit all of these death certificates and you'd have to autopsy the people, many of whom have probably been cremated. Right. Well, uh, yeah, and so I think that the, that the death data is a little too decentralized. I mean, that's my own take. I don't know how you'd really, you know, I guess you could conspire with every morgue across the country to have a, a, an incorrect cause of death, but I, I just don't. I, don't, I just don't know how you would accomplish that. There's, there's just too many people involved. Well, at the and local... And loved ones. Yeah, yeah. At the local level, the binary question, is Bob alive or dead? Okay? That's right. probably That's right. not controversial. But at the national level of aggregation... Right. They, they Listen, until I know for certain where they're... You know, how did they get those numbers... I am of the opinion that they do manipulate, but I don't know that that's absolutely the case. But it is the only number you can look at. Like, every, all the other numbers are worse, as, as you found out through your research. Comparing flu to COVID is bad because of what they're doing in relabeling COVID. Um, it doesn't work that well. So you have to look at overall death. Um, yeah, and, and let's just take them at their word, assuming that everything's correct that that you know this is everything's legitimate here it's too early that we they don't even really understand how it spread what the incub what the incubation period is how how people are getting it uh what where when under what circumstances um none of that stuff's even known and so to compare it to the flu studies it's just it's just completely wrong right it, it's just you can't, uh, you can't do that, and that was what cued me in that this was a, a, a propaganda effort very from the very beginning. Was the overt comparison to the flu? Yeah. And so, if you're going to make an overt comparison and then not qualify it by saying, "Well, 
you know, we really don't know because of this, that, or the other thing. No, you just you just put that number out there in news articles and and you establish that and plant that in the mind of the public. Um, that that to me is, hey, you're poor being propagandized. Well, back to that bar chart. Yeah, yeah. Um, just, just to kind of just to kind of finish that out. So February was the largest number this this year. Uh, March is right in line with the historical average, okay? And April is about one standard deviation below the, hor- the historical average. And so my question is, uh, by the end of April, I think we had 60,000 COVID deaths. Uh-huh. So most of those were recorded in April. So if we said to ourselves that those COVID deaths wouldn't have happened, okay, that puts us down in April. Let's just say all those, let's say COVID never existed in the world. It was in the universe. Life was normal. That means that in April of this year, we would have had less than 150,000 deaths in April. But here's what the CDC will say. But... Mike, four standard deviations below. I know, I know. Four standard deviations below. But Mike, here's what the CDC would say. They would say, because we told the peoples to stay at home, they weren't out driving and running people over or shooting their shotguns while drunk or water skiing on, you know. That's what they'll say. That doesn't account for it. That doesn't account for it. There, there's not that many accidental deaths or driving deaths in a month. I'm sorry. It, it, none of those excuses uh, account for that particular number. Right? Okay. So, so here's, another th- here's another explanation, and this goes out to all you people that listen to Q. Q would say that follow the plan, where we go one, we go all, and God loves Trump, ergo... God has been extra helpful to keep people alive in the month of, of April. In the month of April, yeah. Thank you. Where we go when we go all. <laughs> uh, because of Easter and baby Jesus. That's right, because of Easter and baby yeah. Jesus. But none of us got to go to church, so that's kind of weird. But, well, yeah. And most of us didn't get together with our extended families. So I'm going to ask you a confidence question. Are Which you is really what Easter is about. Oh, yeah. Are you reasonably confident that you were able to get together decent mortality data that, you know, you feel is good, good data? Like, do you feel confident? We had this discussion a little bit a few minutes ago, but are you fairly confident that when it comes to mortality data, you've got about as good a snapshot as a person's going to find? Yeah. Now, these numbers could be adjusted upward later. Oh, they Um, always are. Up or down. That's how the government works. They always are. Well... Yeah, and and I mean, just to be in fairness to how that data is collected and how decentralized it is, um, some places don't report regularly. Oh, gotcha. So, yeah, uh, so, you know, they they could be adjusted upward, but I doubt that we're going to see April's numbers bounce from 180,000 to, you know, 300. So basically, I don't know how that would happen. So basically, how would that happen? Oh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I you know, other than absurdity. Right. And, and again, subtracting out the 60,000, let's just say it was 40,000 COVID deaths, that brings us down to 
140,000, okay, and so 210 is the monthly average, right? Yeah. That's four standard deviations, and, roughly, and four, the average. Four standard deviations, that's pretty much almost impossible, like, in terms of likelihoods. It's, it's, to be that far from the average is pretty strange. Would, would you agree? It is very strange. Yeah, I could do some numbers. I didn't run the statistical numbers on it because I don't even really think it matters well, that much. Well, two standard um, deviations is, is the night You said it was two standard deviations is the 98th percentile? Right, plus or minus of, plus of or the minus. mean. Yeah. 98%. So, so four would probably right. be less than 1%, wouldn't it? Much less. Yeah, you're getting down. Right, so you're getting down. So three standard deviations is point... Well, three standard deviations essentially is three per million. Right. Okay. If like if we're talking about, if you're doing statistical process control and you're trying to get to a, a six sigma quality level, yeah. Um, then you're you, you're looking for three defects out of a million uh, opportunities, and so yeah, the 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 like the likelihood, just in raw statistical terms, I don't know what that fourth standard deviation would be. I'd have to do the math. But it's going to be, um, you know, in the hundred million range, right? Right. It just, yeah. I if think, we're, I think we're the talking key about whole numbers. Yeah. Well, I think the key takeaway here okay. is that the mortality numbers that have been presented for April, if you assume COVID is real, they don't make any sense. If you assume COVID <laughs> is real, that 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 we should have a much right. bigger overall spike. And, and it doesn't matter that people weren't driving or whatever, um, Mike is right, that's a big number, to, that, that 60,000 plus or minus, that's a big number to, to sort of like, you know, poo-poo and push aside. So I think April is an intriguing month, um, especially given all the things that have been happening uh, in the last couple of months. That is interesting. Yeah. And what, you know, what's spooky to me as I look at this bar chart is the the spikes in 2019. Yeah, and, that is weird. And, and there's no commentary. I couldn't find any commentary. I couldn't find any uh, concern in the data. I couldn't find any articles on it. I couldn't find anything. And the, I mean, the numbers are the numbers, right? I mean, I, I've got a table that I directly pulled from the CDC website uh, the, the national mortality data for 2019. Those are those are numbers that are there. That's it. Those numbers are what what they are according to the CDC. And so, why do we? If the average June over 20 years is 198,000 deaths, why last year was June 270,000? I just had a horrible thought. And, and, and I can't. No, nobody, nobody commented on that. Yeah. Nobody like, oh, hey, it looks like we had a bad June. Oh, sucks for seventy. How how many people that is there? Hey, Mike. Thousand people. Eighty thousand people. Mike. Yeah. For those spikes in 2019, I had a horrible thought, and it may or may not be worth digging into at some point in the future. But I wonder if they correlate to any 5G testing. Yeah, who knows? 
I, I mean, I'm not saying, again, I know there are people who think 5G is okay and it's not an issue. I don't know enough about it to say if it's good or bad. I'm fairly certain that, you know, just about any form of radiation in excess is bad. But that being said, it's weird. Those spikes are weird. Hey, you want to move on to the next topic in yeah. the podcast? Okay, so, um, oh, so go, go ahead. Well, what I want to discuss is, I don't have the outline in front of me, um, is the mortality by age group. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Let's do that. Okay. Yeah. So another thing I did was I pulled the mortality mortality by age group uh, for the United States from directly from the CDC's website. Okay, so this is the same data as the, over, as the overall mortality, but the CDC gives it to you by ten year age groups. And what they do is they divide it up less than a year old because um, infant mortality is is greater than um, the mortality from people who survive one year. So if you survive a hundred uh, one year there's a huge chance you're going to make it to age 15. I mean, the, the death rate of ages 1 to 15 is, is so low, it's almost not even significant. Uh, so then uh, 15 to 24 years, 25 to 34, and so on. Uh, so when, when, you, when you divide this up, so what I did is I just ran a Pareto chart, uh, which, is, which just stacks them up, right? And uh, 65 plus account in, in uh, 2018, ages 65 plus accounted for 73.9% of all deaths. And then if you go to 55 plus, it is, um, let's see, about 82 or 83%. Okay. So just on an 80 20 rule, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So then if we look at COVID-19, which helpfully they've also given that broken down by the same uh, breakdown, there's nobody's died under a year old. Virtually, I mean, <laughs> almost nobody uh, up to age 24. And then it from, tw from 25 plus, it follows almost exactly the normal curve uh, for mortality all the way up to yeah for, for, now it is skewed a little bit slightly uh, the, the, the 65 plus it starts to rise right so for that is 65 and over according to the CDC's website 77.8% uh, of the COVID-19 mortality people who died from COVID uh, are 65 years or older. And then if we add in uh, the 55-year the category, that brings it up over 90%. So if you're 55 years or, or younger, you have essentially no more likelihood of dying from COVID than you do from just dying normally. But you have about a 4% chance of dying from COVID over the normal mortality if you are age 65 years or older, and according you, to, to the, the two comparisons there. Yeah, and one of the things I would say about that, too, is it seems like when it comes to where it would be different, because what you're saying, Mike, is that the, the model that describes the typical death rate for some cohort 
you know, is matching essentially, the COVID model is matching overall mortality in terms of the model itself, is what you're basically saying. Yeah. With some, with some right. minor it's, differences. It's skewed, it's skewed slightly older uh, a little bit. Yeah, but, Mike, you'd agree that could be due to report. I mean, Dr. Burke said everything is COVID. <laughs> right. So right. I would expect that to skew for that reason. I'd also add this, too. I would expect potentially more deaths from people in those cohorts just because we're scaring the shit out of people. And all things being equal, if you create a fear campaign, there are going to be people that, yeah, literally get heart attacks and die because you're telling them that they're going to die from some virus they can't see. So it's hard yeah. to really even see this data. It, it, it seems to me you've more or less shown that COVID matches the mortality model, which basically means yeah. that there is no COVID. Well, you know, here, here's the thing. Well, I, my overall conclusion from this is that if we were to erase COVID from our minds and simply go back, rewind in time to February and start reporting on the seasonal flu, okay? Now, I'm not saying they're the same thing, but what I am saying is that it would look very much like what we're seeing now in terms of the number of deaths, the the attention on it and so forth hmm. well why would that not be interesting to the public why would the public ignore that well because what's the status quo right go back to that thing the status quo is flu is a part of life people will die from it people will get sick from it and recover most people the vast vast majority of people will uh, recover from whatever sort of seasonal sickness that they get. And it's just a part of life. So if the press were to report closely on the seasonal flu, nobody would pay attention to it. Yeah. Really? Hey, like, you couldn't get people to, to, to shelter in place on the seasonal flu. Hey, Mike, I think I found yeah. a lot of stuff you sent me, but did you send me a breakdown by age group graphic? Uh, just curious. I I did, and I can send those to you again. I've got them right here in front of me. Okay, I would just, because I want to make sure I include them in my notes, but, okay, so sure. do you want to move on to the next thing, or did you have more stuff you wanted to flesh out here? Nope, that's it. I'm okay, good. okay, so the next subject for us, Mike, um, is the stories about the origin story of the virus, and again, we're already at about almost, yeah, we're about an hour right now. So I'm going to try to get yeah. through five, six, and seven reasonably quickly. Um, I was All late. Right. Just so you listeners, you just need to know, I was kind of late on doing my work for this podcast. This is my bad. Mike did an outstanding job of having his stuff together, and I kind of got my stuff together late. One of the things I did is I built the basic timeline of events, including my own observations, you know, anecdotal, and I reference that. I make a note of that. Um, but one of the things that we need to ask ourselves and maybe just talk about a bit are the origin stories of this virus, because there are different origin stories. One of the origin stories is it came out of a bioweapons lab. Another origin story is somebody had the wrong bat soup at the wrong bat restaurant in Wuhan. An Another origin story is that it comes from the United States, that we really, we really developed it here, 
and then we put it there and then it spread. Another origin story is there were researchers in Canada who brought it back to the Wuhan facility and then decided to monkey with it a little bit more and release it. I think I just listed about four or five origin stories there. Um, yeah. Just off the top of my head. And I don't know, do you remember any other origin stories other than those? No. No. Do you, I mean, which one do you think is the most likely origin story? If any of those is likely at all. Um, there's also the story that it doesn't exist the way we think it does. And that's basically my contention and Mike's that it's really part of a psyop. But which, I mean, if you were trying to say, could any of those be likely, which one would it be? I just wouldn't even know. No. And, you know, can I uh, take us down a little, uh, down, some me down memory lane here for a minute? Yep. Okay. So think, of, think in terms again about Bernays' 14 points, right? Or Wilson's 14 points crafted by Bernays. So that had something in there, like a, like a menu in, in, in the restaurant, right, for everybody to consume. Now, let's let's walk back. Do you remember a gentleman named Jeffrey Epstein? Yep. Okay. Now, I I pay close attention to people who are uh, child molesters, and I was aware of Jeffrey Epstein for a long time. Um, uh, you know, it, it wasn't news to me that this guy popped back up in in, in the news, right? Uh, so when he died, this this to me, I was flabbergasted at how amazingly well this was done. Okay, so Jeffrey Epstein dies in prison, right? Now, we all expected him to die in prison, right? Yep. Or at least that there would be a story that he was going to die in prison. Everybody, memes, how many memes? As soon as he was arrested, the memes started coming out, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, the Clintons, this and that, all these other people. So, okay. So, so when he died, the, the story was, the official story is he, he hung himself, right? Yep. Okay. And then, so, now, no matter what you believe, okay, that story fits your pre- determined narrative. If you believe Jeffrey Epstein's alive, all the elements in that official story, if you read the New York Times account or the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post account, they have everything there you need to believe that he's alive somewhere. Okay? Right down to the, the, can, the video cameras being off, uh, some, not the regular guard there, this and that and the other thing. Now, that same set of information also uh, allows you to believe that the prison system itself killed him. Or it allows you to believe that uh, some assassin entered in and was allowed to kill him. Or it allows you to believe that his roommate or his cellmate killed him. Or... If you want to believe it, you could say, well, it was just incompetence, you know, typical government incompetence, you know, yet another government failed program. You know, they let him kill himself. So no matter what your predilection is, there's information in that story 
that allows you to believe whatever it is that you want. That was the most masterful piece of propaganda I've ever seen in my life. I, I, I read the first article I read on it, I sat in my chair and laughed so hard. I, I couldn't stop laughing because it was so perfect. Every single bias was accounted for in the story. <laughs> it was amazing. And so I think all these origin stories um, are planted there. Uh, you know, Operation Mockingbird style, right? Yep. How many former C and active CIA and defense intelligence people are in every major newsroom in the United States being employed as consultants or actual employees, you know, retired, quote-unquote, or whatever, uh, planted there for the consumption of the different types of birds of a feather, right? We, are, we know that. That's another Bernays, right? Uh, and, and, and gives them the things they need for their emotional satisfaction, um, and then we can move on to the next thing. That's my theory. I, I agree. I mean, I actually thought about this in terms of the timeline, and it's clear to me, based upon what I was reading last summer and mostly last September and October, but it's clear to me that some things went really, really sideways in the financial system starting about a year ago. Um, I mean, it's not, oh, yeah, yeah. It's not like... The repo. Well, yeah, the, what, what people call the repocalypse or, or the breakdowns in the repo market. But it, it wasn't right. just the repo market. Um, the shale bonds were blowing out, the junk bonds. Nobody wanted to, nobody really wanted to sell any more junk bonds for shale. And that's it's been powering it, all this bad debt. So a lot of things were going haywire financially and economically round about September of 2019. And then you have Zoltan Pozar and others right about that time coming out and saying, guys, overnight lending is failing. Banks aren't doing, you know, banks won't lend to each other. The repo market is trashed. So when I look at this, I say, okay, this is something that was happening. And there's no way a rational person um, could say, well, this was caused by the virus. Isn't that fair, Mike? How, Um, How would you claim that a financial crisis that began in September of last year was caused by the virus? You would claim that because of the uh, correlation of time, right? So uh, it's announced that it's a pandemic and the first cases are suddenly found in the United States, even though they've been here for a couple months, and then boom, the stock market uh, Thanks. Yeah, but September of last year, nobody had heard of COVID. No one was talking about it. That's right. Right. But what I'm saying is that when the, the timing, so if, if you're just a guy that, you know, watches his 401k, right? Yeah. Um, then then you're, you're, you're sitting there thinking, wow, you know, hey, you know, MAGA, greatest economy ever, uh, whatever. <laughs> and then, and then uh, you know, this... They've been, this thing's been in China and it's been this, or China, as Trump says. Uh, And then those two things were on the timeline tightly linked. And so if if you don't understand 
business cycle, Austrian business cycle theory, or, um, you know, uh, more deeper financial markets, then you just look at the timing. And yeah. Say, oh, yeah. I understand. I Mike. That's how, that's how you say that. Right. That's how you'd but, say it. But, but I'm, you are correct. Yeah. I'm thinking you logic. Right. I mean, Sorry. I'm talking over you. Go, go, keep going. So, uh, no, it's, it's all good. I, we, that's, that's how, that's a good conversation. We, um, but no, the, the first, for whatever reason, that you are correct. The the debt market uh, has been dysfunctional since last year, Pro- probably even earlier than we know, right? Because that that's a really really vital part of the financial system. That's what everything's based on, right? Yeah. So um, it's probably been dysfunctional for a year. Would be my guess in in actual reality. Uh, and then it just started popping up when banks couldn't go to the the, re- the repo market to get their to meet their reserve requirements. And then, of course, if they go to the reserve the Federal Reserve's window, then that's also the last day of business because that brings in the regulatory storm. Yeah, but here's the uh, thing: when Powell and the, and Powell almost immediately, and I think it was in October, but it could have been September. Powell and that's Federal Reserve Chairman Powell almost immediately expanded the amount of money available um, for the repo uh, it, that would be available yeah, what, for... Go ahead. Yeah, what they did was he he opened up a Federal Reserve special lending facility. That's right. Which essentially is uh, an overnight window that's not the overnight window so that banks could continue to operate and that they could get the money they needed for their reserve requirements. So the, the, the real question is, is where did all the cash go? Uh, I mean, that's a whole podcast to itself. I mean, right. maybe I mean, where, where did the money go? And, and we're not talking about physical dollars here. We're talking about balance sheet money. We're talking about, you know, money on a ledger. Where Where is it? A lot of it. So went, somebody in the world is hoarding it. Yeah. A lot of it went down the derivative debt hole, too, probably. That's true. You know, yep. that, that's a black <laughs> hole. You're probably right. Well, I mean... And you know what they're doing now, right? So now they've opened up these... Uh, by the way, uh, your listeners might really enjoy my favorite, one of my favorite uh, uh, websites, which is um, Wall Street on Parade. And it's just wallstreetonparade.com. Um it's a couple of people who really dig into the numbers and, very, and understand it very, very, very well. Uh, uh, there's an article in there about the um, special vehicles that, that uh, I put a tweet on it last night. Um, oh, go ahead and talk, Don. Let me find it. Okay. I didn't really have much more to say other than in terms of where the money could go, one of the estimates I've heard in recent years is that there's between one quadrillion and four quadrillion of exotic financial instruments or derivatives on planet Earth right now. So if you have a giant hole that's somewhere between a thousand trillion and four thousand trillion in size, and that doesn't even include junk bond debt, that's the black pool stuff. 
and you add into that government corporate debt, junk bond debt, everything, that that's you could keep filling that hole for a long time, um, probably for a number of years before that hole fills up. So a lot of the money I think is going going basically to nowhere. Technically speaking, it's just evaporating out of existence, like pixie dust. Well, it's going to the same place from which it came. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's why I know that a lot of libertarians are very concerned about the, the Fed's behavior here. But if you, if you look at it from that perspective, right, that there's a tremendous amount of, of debt implosion here, um, and it's even more, you know, and I didn't even think about the, the dark pools and, and a lot of the derivatives. Um, that, you know, that, that's a really, really excellent point. Uh, you know, will it be inflationary? Well, it'll be inflationary in ways that they, we can't predict, but, but the most likely way it'll be inflationary is what we see, which is, you know, assets, right? Yeah. It's going to reprop up real estate values. Um, so that, you know, our parents, um, you know, the baby boomer generation, uh, who bought their house for $10,000 in 1972 or 78 can, uh, sell it for a million dollars now. <laughs> yeah. <It's>, hey, um... <laughs> which is the, the most phenomenal thing. Uh, but what, what the Fed's doing now, I just want to, uh, just mention this special purpose vehicles. And I thought, man, where have I heard that before? You want to know where I heard that before? Enron. <laughs> so Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling set up special purpose vehicles owned by these separate companies that would temporarily take these toxic assets off of the Enron balance sheet every time there was a quarterly reporting and then put them back on, right? And so... <laughs> I thought that was hilarious that they're even using the same language. <laughs> yeah. So the Fed is just basically opening up the spigot. They they can't they can't the Fed is not supposed to ever allow itself to lose money. So what they have to do is create these special purpose vehicles that are absorbed by, you know, this, these other commercial banks, but ultimately the Fed is financing them with, with imaginary money. So anyway. That's that. Now we're off on a sidetrack. Side no, that's okay. So I had a couple more things I wanted to cover, but I'm going to try to like yeah. get through them as quickly as I can. I think okay. you've already... i got all the time in, in the world. Oh, no, I totally get it. I have to disconnect here in a bit. That's why. Um, okay. All right. So, num- so next question is the success part of this, and I kind of feel like you've done a good job of covering your perspective on, on why yeah. this has been so successful a psychological operation. They have been reading out, right. of, out of Edward Bernays' book, so to speak, and applying his Can I principles. Add one thing? Yeah, go ahead. Can I add one thing? Yeah. So I, re- I remember clearly being taught in my uh, advanced biology class in high school, one of, one of uh, probably the only things I actually do remember from high school is that class, that... We, uh, whatever you believe about, you know, let's not even go into creation, but as long as we've been here on Earth, we have, as a species, benefited from the micro, uh, the micro world, right? The microorganisms world. Yeah. So 
viruses and and uh, bacteria have helped us as a human species be stronger, both from a help and a harm. Because, you know, just like, you know, if you're breeding, I don't want to compare us to cattle, but just, just biologically speaking, it disciplines the, the genetic code, right? And so thinking in term, thinking through how deeply embedded that is in our code, right? Like literally a virus hits us at a sort of genetic operating system level. And so the fact that they used a virus as the imprimatur for all of this horrendous statism that they're inflicting on us, it's almost not even fair because the average person thinks, thinks about that micro world in a way that you, we probably don't even understand how, how that, like, it's like a, you know, uh, it's it's a, almost like a remote control. No, it's know? it's almost an automatic response. Right, right. It's so deep in us. It it's uh, you know, uh, I'm not a programmer, but there's probably you you are. So there's probably some analogy in computer. You know, it's like hitting the well, kernel, right? I would say it's like it's a kern- kernel. Yeah, kernel level command. Right. Much. There you go. That's all I have to say about it. Well, and I just wanted to just add, I, I agree with Mike. Um, if I were going to, I didn't really exactly see this. I have a note in the in the document. I'm going to include it in the, you know, the notes, whatever. But I have a link to a podcast I did last year, um, November the 23rd, where I say one of the scenarios could be some type of, you know, monkey flu. And I was, and I was joking, like, oh, monkey flu, maybe. But the reason why I brought it up is is because on a certain level, it's probably one of the most powerful ways to do a PSYOP. If you're smart enough at linguistic programming and you get in front of a group of people, you could probably convince half of them that they're sick. And then half of those people would probably be vomiting within a half an hour. It's, it's so powerful. It's like the opposite of the placebo effect. Um, it's yeah. so powerful the effect the mind has over the body that you can, in my view, you could trick millions of people into thinking they have the COVID and they might not even be sick. So, I, yeah, I have yeah. to say this is a pretty smart strategy on their part. Well, you just just to dovetail in with that, uh, there have been cases of women who have convinced themselves they were pregnant and the body went through the entire pregnancy and there was no baby. Yeah, yeah. And there have been right. cases of even sympathetic pregnancy amongst men, you know, right. showing some, yep. of the, some of the features of pregnancy. And there are men, they're just married to a woman that's pregnant, and they're taking on those symptoms at a, at a deep level. Right. It's, it's weird. Okay, to close out, I thought we could talk very quickly about, which is a horrible topic, actually, but I thought we could talk about what's next, um... Because here's the deal, going back to when Snow Day started, and for my listeners, and I think Mike knows this, when S- Snow Day is my way of talking about the lockdown. It's really not cool. It's not funny. There are people dying 
because of this stupid fucking lockdown. So it's not funny, but I call it snow day. But when snow day started, and I remember telling Jim this and other people, I don't see how this can last more than three or four months at, at the most. I don't. For all sorts of reasons, not the least of which people do have to work to survive, you know, and they're going to need food and the people that produce food will have to deliver it. Now, of course, you've got essential workers, blah, blah, blah. But Mike, you and I both know this can't last. So the question is, what comes next? And the document I sent you, there's a section C where I talk about the next flying monkey. What, what's, you know, what's the next big thing in the next, in the next 90 days? And the list of items I have is COVID part two, which is basically more of the shit they're doing. Um, probably, and, and who knows, maybe they release a bioweapon this time. And another scenario, I don't like mentioning it, but I think it's like 50-50, is some type of World War III scenario based upon the propaganda around China. They really did kind of put this on China's lap from a, in many ways, at least amongst the mega people, the, the guilt has been, been, been laid on China. And then I mentioned climate disequilibrium, the long, hot summer. I kind of think this is going to be a long, hot summer, Mike. And I would not want to be in a, well, I am in a city. I wouldn't want to be in a city this summer. And then the last is that something awful is coming. And, and that means it's coming soon because I don't think snow day can last. So maybe the reason for snow day and the virus is because something really terrible is coming and they do not want people blocking the roads. You know, dying at home is fine. Dying in your car on the highway works against their purposes. And that's what I was thinking. These are all terrible. But what do you think is coming next, Mike? You know, on that stuff, I think you're a lot more creative and, and smarter than I am. I, I don't know. Maybe I've got sort of a mental block because it's too horrible. It is too um, horrible. You know, the thing that I was impressed by uh, and, and, and horrified by was how easily and willingly so many of our neighbors just went into their house. Like, they were programmed. Um, I, I, that to me was, I, I, I mean, I, the first time I had that thought, it was a few days in, I thought, this is the end of, of the, whatever it is, that, whatever thing that we thought we were living in, whatever country you want to call it, whatever world, that's year zero right there. That's day zero. And whatever new thing that comes out of that is different moving forward because we have collectively demonstrated to, um, the folks in charge that that uh, they have programmed us sufficiently but i mean mike programming is done yeah and so now what's next i i can't even imagine it because you know i've been a manager for different businesses for a long time and i'm always surprised by the the when i find somebody's been stealing or when i find somebody's been you know doing something they shouldn't have been doing or hiding something you know some something that Maybe they weren't doing right in their job. I'm always surprised by the level, the creativity, and, and just the thought, because it's always so much easier just to do the right thing, you yeah. know? Like, 
it, that, that's the, you know, like you, you work so hard <laughs> to steal $14,000 from your employer, you know, over a year and a half. Like, I mean, you know, you could have just gotten a raise probably with half the work and made more money. So I'm not very good at that. Um, I, I have no idea, man. I mean, but can I, it could be me, anything almost hey Mike, at this point. Mike, yeah. can I rephrase the question? I know, sure. I know that it surprised, it surprised me too. It shocked a lot of people, especially I would say in the liberty movement, how easily people you know, just went into their cages. But even given all that, I cannot believe that this is going to last indefinitely. So don't you think at some point, if they continue this, it's just going to simply fail because people will stop obeying. I mean, this is this doesn't make any sense. It's too crazy. People don't like being penned up inside. And I do think it's going to be a hot summer in a lot of places in the cities. I think it's going to be, it's already been kind of a cooker here in Seattle in May. How, yeah. how much longer can the lockdown last before it simply fails because societies can't work this way? I mean, I guess that's well, a question. I'm not. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. It's just like, just intuitively. No. no. Do you th- yeah. You know, I I do have a couple of thoughts. Um, if it's if it's if it's violence that that is the is the goal here, um, and you know, I'm not I'm not big on conspiracies, and maybe we could do another episode on that sometime, um, but. Uh, if, if the people who are propagating this lie on us, if their goal is violence, then I think the lockdown continues until time X, right? Yeah. And number of days until violence is produced and then martial law can be declared. And then who knows? It's a kind of a, an unknown on the other side of that, right? Yeah, and the other thing is, yeah. if if they want, if it's population control, <clears throat> then I think what we'll see is is a series of clamping, tightening down, and loosening up, and tightening down, and loosening up, and tightening down, and loosening up, just enough to let pressure off, and then, but never enough to actually restore supply chains, never enough to really actually return the normal flow, the the previous flow of the things that sustain us, right? And then uh, the goal of that would be, you know, uh, less nutrition. And then, of course, we know what flows from that, actual plague, right? People dying from cholera, whatever, anything. You know, if 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 you have malnutrition, you can die from just about any microorganism that's there. You can die from the stuff that's in your own body. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that turns on you because you don't have the stuff that they need to sustain those microorganisms that help you survive. So, you know, that could be another outcome is that, hey, there's a little bit of population control going on here. Those are the things that come into my mind. But again, who knows? It, it could go back to quote unquote normal. I don't, I mean, if it went back, there's only one scenario I can think of where they might try to get it back to normal. And even then, I don't know what normal is other than the same racket, but worse. 
but it's a scenario right, right. where because I, I know there's a robbery going on. Okay, no matter what your yep, feelings are, that. yeah, whatever your feelings might be about the virus, there is a robbery going on, and trillions upon trillions are being stolen by really shitty people as we talk right now, and it's being done in broad daylight. They don't even need to hide because you know when you're that rich and powerful. All you got to do is steal the money and then give everybody, well, not everybody, give a bunch of people a $1,200 check. So there is a robbery going on, okay? That's what I'm, I'm certain of. So in the scenario where it's just a robbery, where it's just them ripping us off like they did 10 years ago, and, and they really did for most of the last decade, if it's just more of the same, but, but on a large yeah. scale, that could be, th then maybe the, the Bill Gates stuff is mostly fear porn to keep, to keep people scared so that when they do finally end the, the crisis, once all the witnesses are dead, people will be so thankful, Mike. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, government, for letting us go outside again. And that is potentially a scenario that could occur. And if it, But if that is the scenario, Mike, it's got to happen within the next 60 days. Because I think once you lose a few cities, people underestimate how badly societies can deteriorate and how quickly, whether it was Yugoslavia in the 90s or Lebanon back in the 60s and 70s, once, or, or even Detroit. I mean, Detroit was once considered to be one of the greatest cities oh. in America. Yeah. Okay? No, and, and, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Detroit. I used to, when I was a, a very young man and first married, I had a job. Um, where we, I delivered from, from the city I lived in, West Michigan, over to Detroit. We delivered food from a food warehouse uh, to, to restaurants and whatnot. And I can tell you that Detroit, even then, back in the early 90s, was um, a booming metropolis compared to what it is now. I mean, I mean look, Detroit is roughly 100 square miles. Almost 40 square miles of it are abandoned. Yeah. Think about that. Oh, I, I know. I, but, but the funny thing is, if you went back to the year 19, let's say 1960. Yes. Detroit, Michigan would have been considered super one of the... city. I'm sorry? <laughs> it would be considered a super city. Yeah, one of the great cities. Like yeah. Seattle's a super yep. city. Oh, Seattle's a super right. city. Nothing can destroy it. <laughs> Those are famous yeah. last words. Um, right. So, I'm so I. The water off for a day. So the the reason why I think the timeline is tight, Mike, for a lot of reasons, is because they could lose the country. Like they could, this place could descend into so much chaos that there would be no way to to turn things back. Now, maybe that is their goal: is just to have the entire country descend into levels of chaos. I don't know. I mean. It seems like they do that to other countries, Mike. It seems like right. they they engineer chaos around the world. Maybe they're maybe they've been training and sharpening maybe their skills a, to use on us. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a return of the id. Yes. <laughs> right? Like we've been doing this not we, I don't know who we is, but you know, uh, the United States taxpayer has been funding you know, a global conquest for, I don't know, a hundred years and for, for, for seriously since the forties. Right. Yeah. 
Uh, and so maybe there's just some sort of psycho- collective psychological need to do it to ourselves. Maybe. I, I, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. But, but uh, like I said, once you lose something like a city, it's not that easy to get yeah. back. And here's the thing is, Detroit was a city that was lost in a nation that was still functioning. What does it mean yeah. if every city suddenly becomes like Baltimore or Detroit? What, right. what, what, you know, how do you go back? You see, this is the thing I don't see. Snow Day doesn't make a lot of sense because even if you can turn it off, like you, you, everyone gets to go free tomorrow. Everyone gets, Trump goes on the TV and says, free at last, free at last, everyone is free at last. And it's all over. Even if that happened on Monday, Mike, the damage that's right. been done by this, I think it would take a year or more to just claw our way back to something that would be functional. That's how much damage I think we've done already economically. And that's optimistic. And not, yeah, and let's remember that wealth is not money, right? Yeah. Wealth is, you know, I kind of have my own pet definition, and this is probably, an economist would probably have a, a problem with this, but from a philosophical standpoint, my definition of wealth is the technological output of people doing what they do, people being human, right? Yeah. It's the technological output of, of voluntary exchange. And that's, that is the wealth, right? It's the know-how, it's the the improvement of the natural world around us and in, in, in mastery of it in ways that benefit us and make our lives better. Um, that's, that's wealth right there. This financial stuff, that's just, that's just make-believe. That's a, that's a hallucination on top of it all that maybe greases, helps us grease the wheels somehow. I, I don't really understand it very well, but well, I mean, in terms of how that relates. I sometimes call but, our... Mike, sometimes I call our current system, at least the one that existed before January the 1st of this year, I call that system neo-Stalinist or neo-Stalinism yeah. because it's very plain. Yeah. Um, the way I think that, that's great, by the way. Well, the way that trade works, it's not free trade. It's mercantilist no. trade. It is controlled that's trade. Right. Free trade would be Dan trading directly with anybody, including somebody in another country. That would be free trade, no intermediary. The way that these trade deals are done, they're very mercantilist, murky, bureaucratic kinds of mercantilist things. They're crappy. And so when you think about it that way, you know, mercantilist trade patterns, um, Stalinist economies where it's highly centralized in ways that don't make sense, and then you have all the financial chicanery and then you have the Federal Reserve essentially managing the economy with just a few numbers. What you're talking about is a lot of fragility, too. Very fragile. And my issue is, can you take something that fragile and turn it off? Because one of the signs we had, a neo-Stalinist economy, is there was a switch on-off. In a free world, there is no such switch. You, you can't do that. You know, plagues happen. There were plagues in the time of the founding fathers. 
Did suddenly everybody turn off commerce because of the plagues? No, they dealt with it. They managed it. It's like when we were talking about where the concept of the quarantine comes from. It was a logical response to a problem, but they didn't like say, let's all just stay at home for three months. That would have been crazy. So the thing I think about in terms of this whole what happens next is turning it back on again, this fragile, janky piece of machinery. Who knows what happens when that happens, you know? I, I don't know. I mean, one thing I will say about the, the lockdown, Mike, if you're a believer in real money and real commerce between people without the government peeking over your shoulder, they really did need to keep people at home during this financial crisis because a lot of people would have probably said, I'm going crypto, I'm going silver, I'm going gold, fuck this. Actually, the lockdown makes a lot of sense. If you have to revamp the world economy and, and force-feed globalist monetary policy down people's throats, you've got to keep people from going other avenues, Mike. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, you know, an interesting study could be made about the petrodollar. And there's, you know, we we all know that, well, not we all, but Many of us in the liberty movement understand that the only reason the dollar has value is because it's it's uh, it's oil is denominated in dollars, right? Yeah. And it's been enforced with, you know, American projected power. Uh, that's why we have. That's really the only reason we have what whatever it is, twelve or thirteen aircraft carrier groups, plus whatever marine expeditionary forces there are, and air wings and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of little installations all over the world. and It's just dollar diplomacy to ensure that the trade of the petrodollar. But what's really weird to me is the, the glut of oil, right, that was accumulated prior to this, because um, what Russia and Saudis and some of the other OPEC nations were kind of on a production battle, <laughs> yep. Right. They were doubling down. Like, no, we're gonna we're gonna ride this and get as much cash out of this thing as we can, and be damned. You know, the, the supply and demand be damned. Um, and obviously that crashed, right? So there was a there was a crash in demand, and then the futures market accordingly crashed because there was nobody to take delivery of this oil. Nobody wanted to take delivery of the next month's oil. So I, I don't know how that factors in as well, um, but intuitively, it seems to me that there's something to that, uh, and there's something also involved there, which could be studied, I suppose. I just don't know how to do it. Well, I will say this. when the If they did suddenly announce snow days over... Um, I think that glut of oil would at least allow oil prices to stay reasonably stable because Powell, here's the thing, <sighs> Powell, no matter what, is going to have to print a lot of money. You know, when I say print, I mean add zeros. He's going to have to do that. Well, that will invariably impact the price of oil just like it did back in 2011, 2012. It's, it's inevitable. That's what, what, would, what would happen. So I don't know. I, I think that um, I think one potential thing about this glut is it buys them more time. 
I mean, that's what this whole snow day does. It buys them time, keeps people at home, keeps them quiet. One, one reality is they're trying to rework the world economy into something that they want. And they just need us to stay at home while they're doing it. And that oil glut, that'll just, you know, it'll grease the engine once it's all over. Oh, look at the prosperity and all the cheap oil, Mike. Isn't this great? I mean, it's kind of like blowing up Germany and Japan and finding out that you're the number one Western economy. You know, hey, we only yeah. had to blow up half the world along with other people. You know, I'm not saying we did it by ourselves, but hey, World right, War II, right. man, yeah, no, no. it helped. Yeah, you're, you're, you're voicing the, uh, the, uh, the, the banksters and the power elites uh, uh, proclamation that this is, oh, Hey, I, I, I got to close this out, but is there anything else you want to yep. talk about before we go? Um, no, I, I mean, you know, there, there's always lots of stuff bouncing around in my brain, but I, I think we've covered it. Uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, and I appreciate our conversations. Oh, I do too. And I'm, you know, I wasn't as prepared for this one as I should have been, but Mike, you've been great. And if you can, Send me the graphics for the age group breakdown. I'll want to include those in the show notes. Other than sure. that, I, I would love to have you on again. Um, maybe even digging into this topic even deeper. Um, but but it's a scary, you know, in a way, I haven't wanted to think about this topic for a few weeks simply because it's just got me so worn down. Like every like everyone else, probably. But yeah. that being said, you know, oh, go ahead. You know what? I'll you know what? I'll, I'll just uh, maybe I'll end it on a positive note. And you know, for me, I, I'm I'm a Christian. Um, I, I was raised that way. Uh, I I have had a mixed relationship with with uh, formal church going, um, and I think I'll take responsibility for that. For me, just being somebody who has a hard time fitting in in, in bureaucratic organizations. Um, but on the positive note, I would say that. You know, when the rubber hits the hits the road, we as a as a species take care of each other. We really do. And if that weren't the case, we wouldn't be here. That that's just true. We would not have survived uh, and thrived on the on on this uh, green planet, uh, green and blue planet, I guess, uh, like we like we have. So no matter what. These folks throw at us um, the, the true power, as Jim said uh, on your last podcast, uh, was is with us, right? Yep. We're not inhabit. We don't inhabit their world, right? They, whoever they are, inhabit our world. And the most powerful thing I think that each of us can do is to ignore it as much as we can. To be, to understand it, to know it, but in your daily life and in your daily actions, to act as if these people don't matter. And I'll, I'll, I'll take this, right? So I've been a manager for a long time. I work in a, in a company that's unionized, and I've seen it time and time and time again. 
where a manager gets himself in a position with the people who report to him where they simply quit working for him. They pretend to work for her. And they literally turn their backs. Literally turn their backs. And that manager is like T minus one month. <laughs> right? Yep. Until they're out. They're, they got to be pulled from that shop because they have lost their, their, their crew. And that's kind of the image that I have in my mind if we all collectively simply turn our backs on these people. It wouldn't take very long before they all starve. No, I agree. And, and, that yeah. is, and that is important to point out and to emphasize that we have the power if we, th if we are just willing to act like dignified human beings we have the power to dispel this this curse upon us and to actually have our lives back. So you're right, Mike. We do have that power. Yeah. And have a great rest of your weekend. And Thank I'll, you, you too. I'll talk to you again, hopefully, soon. All right, man. Bye. Bye.